I will be reading all of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This concludes the reading of God's word. Morning, church. It's great to be here. I'm going to start asking when I go to preach in English of somebody to do the reading because that's the hardest part for me to do when I preach. It's great to be here. I was here like a year ago, I think, and my wife and my kids were with me, and 
I like to say my, my marriage, and I think I say that before, is like grace and, 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 and mercy. Grace is like you see my wife and you see me, she married me by grace. And mercy is like her, the, the kids look like her. <laughs> and let me inform you, they're growing up and they still look like her, so they are still experiencing the mercy of the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's great to be with, with, with Matthew. It's always, it's always a humbling experience to be a, around Matthew. He's so gifted. You know, I forgot that he plays the piano and he can sing. And he's so eloquent when he speaks. So it's very, it's very good for my soul to be around Matthew. I'm so glad that the Lord is using him here in this area. And uh, he's such a godly man. Uh, he asked me to tell you a little bit of what's going on in Latin America Basically, what happened is uh, 500 years ago, the Reformation skipped Latin America. Uh, we never got Reformed teaching in Latin America. And for the last 100 years, there has been a growing evangelical church, but the Reformed side of the evangelical church has not been a big influence in the Latin countries. And in the last... Ten years, there's been a more growing presence, and it seems in the last five years, there's an explosion of uh, hunger for deep uh, study of the Word of God. Not only emotions, we, we need the emotions, emotional part, but having the Word of God informing our emotions. Hispanics, were very emotional, we're loud, we like to parry, and sometimes I think we took that and run with that. But what we want is the truth of the word of God to inform our emotions so we can parry with, with truth. There's, there's, that's what we want. And, and it's great to see it throughout Latin America. This year I have the privilege of being five times in Puerto Rico, three times in Colombia, one time in Chile, three times in Mexico, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Ecuador. And the common denominator is a hunger for the gospel teaching. People cannot get enough. Uh, I just came from Colombia, and there was 1,500 people all over South America that gathered in Medellin, Colombia, to hear uh, teaching on the book of Daniel. We just went through the book of Daniel in three days. Uh, it wasn't anything about becoming a champion or how you can be the better, of, better you. It was about studying God's word, and you see that more and more. So pray for Latin America. There's a big need for God to raise up uh, qualified elders and men that will preach faithfully in the local churches. Uh, some of the things that we're working as a denomination, we have a contact in Venezuela. I don't know if you are all aware of what's going on in Venezuela. And this guy's faithfully preaching in Venezuela, and we are, as a local church uh, denomination, helping him out and sending support so he can... Uh, continue to preach the gospel in Venezuela and also help their congregation. There's a, a guy named Jacobis in Santa Marta, extremely gifted guy. He's like 30-year uh, Hispanic Matthew in some ways. Uh, very, very gifted, very gifted. That's my job, to come here and lift up the local pastors. Uh, and, and for some reason, he wants to be part of Sovereign Grace. He's, this is one of the guys that all, like Acts 29, everybody's like looking for him. And he's actually looking uh, for us. He has seen something, especially the, the application of the gospel to day-to-day life that is really attractive to him. And he wants to, go to, to, to build a relationship. There's uh, two churches in Cuba that was there that faithfully preached the gospel. One of the churches, roof collapsed, so we're trying to help to raise funds to, to be able to, to, to have that, that roof back. But they still meet 
with that open roof uh, to praise God every Sunday. And uh, God is doing something. Uh, Dominican Republic, I was in June. Over 3,000 people from all over the continent flew to Dominican Republic to hear gospel preaching. So please pray for us, pray for the Hispanic world, and continue to be an example of how uh, congregations can work together uh, from, from different backgrounds because we will all be there in the throne of God from every tongue and nation. So if we can pray and we can turn to Psalm 73, and I'd like to say something. If you're a visitor with us today, you will get an English speaker next week. Uh, so hang on in, the, in there. Uh, it's a good thing that we are a church that we live in the continuation of the gifts. We pray for the gift of the tongue interpretation from bad English to good English. And uh, I like to say this, not, to, not for pity, but because it's a reality. I hope that what my accent and sometimes messing up the tenses do for you is to remind you of the unity that we have in the gospel. That from every tongue and nation, we will come and worship God. And I'm pretty sure it will be in Spanish. <laughs> we, we have more fun. I just, I just have to say it. So let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are good that you save us from different backgrounds, from different stories. But the common thread in the story is mercy and grace. And that's through you and Jesus that died for our sins. As we come to this passage, we're grateful for your word that is truly you. You spoke to us as our sister read your word. As these are your words. Let it, our attention be drawn to the passage and that from this passage our souls will be edified. And we will lift up our eyes and look to you and look to Jesus. That we could see him as we can only be transformed as we see his glory. I pray that the Holy Spirit will be among us in a way that the congregation and the preacher will be affected by this truth. And will be transformed and you will get all glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I grew up in Puerto Rico as Matthew say. Uh, and, and Puerto Rico, the big thing is... Basketball, boxing, and baseball. We are not a soccer nation. The island is too small. If we kick the ball too hard, it will go to the ocean. So we are baseball, <laughs> basketball, and boxing. And, and, and I grew up, actually, my, my dad was a boxer kind of growing up. So I went to, like, uh, boxing matches since an early age. And one thing that you learn while watching boxing is that the most devastating punch it's not the, the strongest punch. Sometimes you see a boxing match and you see this crony guy beating up a big muscular guy. Actually, a couple of months ago, there was a Mexican. He was overweight. I was going to use another, another, another word. But he was an overweight guy. He just beat up this muscle-up guy from England. And you are, how that happened? How, how can somebody that looks stronger doesn't hit the, the hardest? And, and the reality is boxers are trained to take punches that they see coming. They can take a punch. That's part of their training. The most devastating punch for a boxer is not the strongest punch. It's the punch that they don't see coming. It's the punch that comes in an angle that they were not expecting. 
That's why you see somebody like Manny Pacquiao, short guy, beating up bigger guys. Because he can be throwing punches. It looks like I can do this, huh? <laughs> from, a, from an angle that people are not expecting the punch. And you see the results. When you have a punch that is well thrown, that somebody hasn't seen, it's devastating. People are shocked. People are, are kind of like stumbling. Suffering can come to our lives like a punch that you were not expecting. Life is fine. Everything is going well. And all of a sudden, boom, it hits you. And you are like disoriented. You are in a cloud. You are overwhelmed. It can come in many ways. It can be sickness that you were not expecting. Everything was going fine. You were taking care of of cholesterol, everything, and then all of a sudden there's this diagnosis that is kind of rocking your world. Maybe it's a rebellion, rebellion child. You did everything by uh, Ted Trip book, and all of a sudden he's not responding to the gospel. And this is consuming you. Maybe somebody that is sinning against you, and, and you don't know why he's, all of a sudden this person has turned against you. Maybe it's difficulty in relationship. Maybe it's Financial issues, maybe it's difficulty at the church. When these things happen, when this punch comes and rock our world, we forget everything and we become consumed by our thoughts and what's going on in our life. Our world is rock. We, we don't think clearly. And in, middle, in the middle of this, our temptation is to say, if God is good... Why is this happening to me? Is he sovereign and everything under control and the Bible says he's good? Why is this happening to me? And, and we go even further and this psalm showed that situation, that, that, that common experience. We start looking to other people and say, why are they prospering and this is happening to me? Why the people that, you know, they're living their life all wrong seems to be doing great and I'm trying to serve the Lord, and my, my life is kind of in the rocks. Psalm 73 is going to help us to see that in the middle of this situation that is real, that is rocking your world, God is good. This psalm shows that in the presence of God, we experience the goodness of God. In the presence of God, when we are in front of God, we experience the, the goodness of God. God has revealed himself, and he has revealed himself to be a good God. The problem is that many times, during suffering, we tend to measure the goodness of God surrounding the circumstances and know in the reality that God has told us that he is good. So in the presence of God, we experience the goodness of God, point number one, the goodness of God. Verse number one say, starts saying, truly God is good to Israel. And, and what, what the psalmist is doing is, as, as when we were reading, he's going to go from verse 2 to verse 16 and tell us all the way that he's suffering. All the way that he's struggling. He's going to tell us, things are going wrong for me and it seems like everybody is doing great. So he wants to give us a word of cautious because he knows what would be our temptation. When he starts sharing all his situations, 
Our temptation will be to go and say, I understand you. And become part of the pity party. And go with him and start also being affected by the situation and start doubting the goodness of God. So he starts the psalm with something that we cannot forget through all the psalm. God is good. He's telling us a truth that the Bible is revealing is that God is good. He's good. And he's saying that he's good to Israel. The problem is we measure the goodness of God not because of what he has said about himself, but because of the circumstances that surround us. If things are going great, God is great. If things are a little difficult, eh, maybe God is not that good. And one thing that encouraged me about this psalm is that these men that were inspired by the Holy Spirit had similar experiences and temptations that we have. That encouraged me. That encouraged me that they struggle with things that we also can struggle. And it's this, this questioning, is God really good? If this is happening to me, does God really love me? Church, what is truth and what this is telling us is that truly God is good to Israel. We can stand in self Israel. We can say truly God is good to the people of God, to the church. And if you are part of the people of God, this tells you that God is good to you. The gospel is right there in the second part of this verse. To those who are pure in heart. I don't know about you, but if I'm sincere and I'm true to myself, I'm not that pure in heart. You know the thoughts that I have to battle? There was a guy in, the, in 95 that wasn't behaving that well, that well when I was driving from Gatesburg. I didn't have that many pure thoughts toward him. <laughs> if, if, if all that have gone through my mind in the last week is published, oh, have mercy on me, Lord. This is the thing. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But if we are true to ourselves, we are not yet Completely pure in heart. So how can God be good to us? And the only way is through Jesus. Because Jesus was truly pure. And now we are united with him. We are now pure in heart. And God can be good to us. That's the way we don't measure his goodness to circumstances. The way we measure his goodness is that now those that are impure in heart are pure in heart through Jesus Christ. That's the goodness of God. That's the goodness of God to you and me. He's good to those who are pure in heart. I'm not pure in heart. So how God can be good to me? Because another one that was pure lived a perfect life and died for my sin. And now I'm pure. That's the goodness of God. And that's enough for us to say he is good. I don't know if I told this story last time. You know, different places kind of. All come together, but here it goes again. <laughs> if not, so just before we went to the pastor's college, a couple of years, we were in this process of being looked by different pastors to see if there was a calling in my life. And we went to Miami, and we stayed with a couple there. And we were in the we have been married like 
five, five and a half years, and we just started trying to have, have babies. And every month goes by, didn't have babies, didn't have babies, didn't have babies. And when you are going through infertility, that kind of, it becomes very consuming. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's there. You have this big desire that seems to be a good one. And for some reason, you are not getting it. And so we are in this house, and we're talking with this brother from the church. They were very hospitable, and we're kind of opening our hearts to tell them we're, we're dealing with this. It seems like Kathy has having a situation that she cannot conceive, so we're opening her heart. And, 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 and this is what the brother told us. It's like, if God doesn't give you children, do you still think that he's good? And I was like, thank you, brother. <laughs> you know, you, you want somebody to kind of like tell you everything's going to be okay. And Kathy and I, we went, back, we went that day in the afternoon to the Miami airport. I remember both of us crying in the terminal. Not because that airport is horrible, because of what we were thinking. <laughs> and telling God, you are enough. You are good. If you don't give us this, you're still good because we were unclean our hearts and you cleanse our heart. Our most deeper need in life you have taken care of. And it's the need for salvation and the need for a pure heart. So we see the goodness of God in the gospel where we become pure in heart by the pureness of Jesus Christ. In the presence of God, we experience God's goodness. Point number two, we saw the presence, the goodness of God. Point number two, the absence of God. And let me explain this before Matthew run me out of here as a heretic. God is everywhere. We think he's absent. He's everywhere. He's with us. He's with his people. In those moments, we think he is absent. And what comes starts Growing up in those moments is self-pity. It's this sense of like, why me? Why this is happening? And we become self-centered. We start looking at ourselves and our situation. We're consumed by it. And it becomes like a snowball effect. And I'm not, I, I don't want to make it like what you're going through is not real. It's real. But what we start doing is feeling bad starts feeling good. I don't know if that makes sense. That sense of self-pityness, it becomes like, okay, this is the way I need to feel right now. And we start looking at ourselves, stop looking at God, and we, as we start looking at ourselves, we're going to start seeing that we start looking at other people. And we start, instead of seeing the goodness of God, we start envying what everybody else has. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see what this is saying? He almost stopped being a Christian. That's basically what we, have, we can say. He stopped almost. He fell away from serving the Lord. And that's one of the things that we have to be cautious when suffering comes to us. If we become some soul self-centered we start doubting the goodness of God. We start looking at how other people are doing great. We may end up with a bitter heart 
that store, stop being thankful for what the Lord has done for us. And we can say, my feet had almost stumbled. He almost got lost. Why? Because he envious the arrogant. He envious the wicked. And now with Facebook, it's even worse because everybody put the perfect selfie. You know, life in Facebook is perfect. Everybody has great life. You know, we just went to Europe in April. And people were like, wow, that trip looked amazing. It was amazing. It was a great trip. But I don't put the, I don't put the, the, the picture when the kids are, are angry. I don't put the, the picture when I'm having an argument with Kathy if we, can, if we need to eat pasta or something else. We just put in Facebook the perfect picture. And that, you know, get our hearts to start saying, look at, look at them. Look at the wicked. Look how they prosper. You see, the problem is not that, is that they prosper. The problem is that we're measuring God's goodness by the circumstances. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're doing great. The problem is that we're measuring God's goodness by the circumstances. And you see, I want to say something. I may have said this last year. We need to define trials. I went this morning to urban coffee shop, and I was... Last year I went and I loved it. So I was, I was anticipating, anticipating that coffee, got there, got my order in. It seemed that they have a barista in training. I, I throw it away. I throw it away. That's not suffering. That's not suffering. That's an inconvenience. You see? We're becoming a little soft with suffering. It seems like everything is suffering. You know, somebody put it on Facebook. They they, they got my, my, after driving two hours, they got my order wrong. I'm like, job. No. But which ways can be envy the wicked? Maybe the relationship, your marriage, it's not going well. You're trying to serve the Lord, and it seems like there's, there's no joy there, and you see the joy of other people that they don't even serve the Lord. Maybe it's health, continuous struggle with a condition. Maybe it's difficulty at work. You try to do things the right way, and see that the people that cut corners are the ones that are moving forward. Maybe you are moms in the middle of parenting, and you're, you are uh, putting yourself... A, a, against the gifts of other moms, and you think that you sh- sh- uh, are, are sh- uh, coming short. For us, it was we couldn't have babies. And when you want to have babies, everybody's having babies. They come out of everywhere. Everybody's having babies. It's like, oops, we were not even trying, but the God blessed us with another surprise. <laughs> Everybody. Everybody's having babies, and you cannot have babies. And you start envying People, and this causes bitterness, confusion, and consternation. Do you know who sometimes we can envy? Our past. What could have been. Before uh, being a pastor, I was a consultant in the IT business world. And for some time I thought I was white and I started playing golf. And 
So I went to this trip to Puerto Rico after I became a pastor to preach at this church. And, and they put me in a hotel. And the hotel, the room, looked at a, at a golf course that I used to go and play when I went down to Puerto Rico. And literally, I didn't have the money to go and pay for the, for the green fees. So I'm about to preach God's word. And in my heart, I'm tempted at, at envying the past. I used to make this much money. My life used to be so good. And I don't know why, because I was, I was, I was so bad at golf. that it was, It's a favor that I don't play anymore. But, but you know what I mean? What, what could have been? In the Hispanic world, my friends here, you ask them, all of them, they could have been professional, but they have some kind of injury. That's just the way it is. They, they, they were the next Messi, but we have this, we are a legend in our own minds. <laughs> and we are envious of what could have been. And we become bitter. Look, look how it affected the psalmist. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see what he's saying? He's saying it's not worth it to serve you, Lord. But you see the problem in that verse? He is trying to say to the Lord, you owe me something. You see, I've been trying to serve you and it's not worth it because I'm not obtaining what, we, what I want. It's a, it's, a, it's a type of prosperity gospel that we still believe. If things don't go my way, why I have served you, Lord? And the one thing that we don't understand here again is like, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. We cannot keep our heart clean. It's the blood of Jesus. When we understand the gospel, we will not respond in that way because we think we deserve better, and we forget that we deserve hell. We think we deserve better, and we forget that we deserve hell. Through this psalm, inspired by God, it teaches that in the moment of suffering, we cannot look at ourselves. We need to look to another place. And this is what we're going to look down. In the presence of God, we experience the goodness of God. We need to look at him. And we can only do this Point number three, in, in the presence of God. We saw the goodness of God, the absence of God. We need the presence of God. This is the solution. One thing about this psalm is that, first of all, it doesn't tell us what was the problem of the psalmist. So he applies to any situation. It's not telling us what really was happening. But he tells us the effect it had. He became bitter. He became self-centered. And he started envying people. I think we can all relate to that. And the other thing is, he doesn't tell us that the trial ends. What he tells us is that his perspective changed. And we're going to see what changed the perspective. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's what changed it. We don't know if the problem ended. We don't know if he's now, he's not, he's not having the, the issue anymore. What we know is he went to the presence of God and his perspective changed. In verse 16, he says, I, but when I thought how to understand this, he seemed to be wearing some tests. He's like, if I try to understand why I'm suffering and they're doing great, I cannot get it. 
Everything changed in the presence of God. And that's what we need. And that's the goodness of God. Six years ago, I started running. And my wife said, I haven't stopped. I'm like Forrest Gump. <laughs> Thank you, sister. <laughs> and so I, I started running. I started doing different races. So I'm, 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 we're in the middle of a big trial that we were going like maybe four or five years ago. And I'm doing my first half marathon, New York, uh, Washington, D.C. Rock and Roll Marathon. And so the week of the race, I'm being training. I'm feeling great. Uh, kids have like uh, posters that they're going to show in the in the race and things like that. I, I'm telling Kathy, Kathy, I think we are in mine, mile 12. A half marathon is 13 miles. Point one. Uh, don't forget the point one. <laughs> we, I think we are in mile 12 this trial. We we are about to cross the finish line. So I'm running the race, and and this race in particular. Uh, the, the, the people that, that do the full marathon and the people that do the half marathon, they start at the same time. It's like 25,000 people, and, you know, they, they don't do, they start first marathon runners and then half marathon runners. They start at the same time. They just have a different bib color. So at that time, I think uh, I, I was wearing the red one, which was the half marathon. Blue one was the full marathon. And in mile 12, they, they have like a Y. And half marathoners go to, toward the finish line, and full marathoners have another half marathon to run. <laughs> so it's very funny to see people going, and other people going. <laughs> because we are celebrating that we're about to finish, and they're like, I have to run another one of these. And when I took that, at that moment, I, I heard the Lord saying, not in an audible voice, but in my heart, it's like, you still have another half marathon to run. You see, our hope is not the end of the trial. Our hope is the presence of God. Because we don't know if we have to run a half marathon, a 10K, a full marathon, or an ultra marathon in a trial that we're living. That's not the hope to say it's going to finish. Because if it doesn't finish, we're going to get more bitter. And the other thing is, in a fallen world, you may finish this one, there's maybe another one waiting for you. Our hope is the presence of God. Because you know what? Our finish line is not the trial. Our finish line is heaven. If you're just running to get through whatever you're going through, you're running the wrong race. We will see here that what, what the... the the change in the perspective of the psalmist is that he saw that he was running for a trial and then now he saw, I'm running a bigger race. I'm running for the presence of God in eternity. You see, the perspective changed. And this is what it changed. Verse 17 said, then I discern their end. Then I discern their end. You see, he was envy. Being envious of the wicked until he was in the presence of God and he saw life through eternity. And he saw, I know how they're going to end. And we're going to see here it's not a good thing. So I, being a pastor for the last 13 years, my emotional equity has gone very low. 
I, I need to be wise where I put my emotions. So I don't watch movies anymore that make me anxious or, you know, like one of those movies that you don't know what's going to happen. I don't watch them. I don't have the emotional equity to invest there. When you're, when you're dealing with the entire situation, sickness of a congregation, you carry them in a different way. So pray for your pastors. So I just don't have the equity to go there and invest in, I don't know, Infinity Wars or End Games. But my kids, they still want to see the Avengers and they still want to. So I have learned that you love the things that your kids love. So I go and take them to see the movie even though I don't want to. But you know what I do? I go to Wikipedia and I read the whole movie. And I know what's going to happen at the end. <laughs> I buy a good popcorn. And everybody's like, oh, what? And I'm like. You know why? Because I know the end. This is what happened to the psalmist. He knew what was going to happen, and that took away all the self-pityness, all the anxiousness, because he knew in the middle of that difficult situation what was his end, and his end was a good one. Look at the end of the ungodly in verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment. You see, you can have the perfect life. In a moment, swept away, utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I cannot think of something else that is worse for a human being than God despising them. So there's nothing to envy. And if you are here with us today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, that is the end. But there's a better end for those who trust in Jesus, dying for your sins, that he raised from the dead, and we're going to raise with him. You see, the end of the people of God, even when things look bad right now, is a good one. And in the presence of God, when we're there, our perspective changes because it's not that we see this rosy, kind of like immediate future, but we see a rosy, eternal future because we see what God does and what God is. Our perspective changes because we see what God does and what God is. Let's see what God does. Verse 21. <clears throat> when my soul wasn't bitter, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You see what he's saying? He's saying, when, when I was in this bitterness, I was like, a, like an animal. Kind of reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar. You, you need to clap if I can say that in English. <laughs> I like to call him King Nabu because... <laughs> you see what he's saying? He's saying, we, we, we are in this reality, but when we're having hard talks, Thoughts toward God, we are acting irrational. We're not acting like, like, like rational people because the most rational thing is that God is good. And we know because he has revealed himself. And look what God does when, when now he, he was acting brutish and ignorant. He was like a beast. Verse 23 tells us what he does. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, and after what you will receive me to glory. I don't, I don't know if you see it, but what he's saying is, you have me in my past, my present, and my future, and you are guiding me. You see, when he thought that God was absent, now he sees in his presence, no, I wasn't absent. Actually, I was guiding you. When you're thinking you were almost getting lost, you were not getting lost because I was caring you. I was taking care of you. That's why he says, uh, I was always with you. I'm continually with you. In the presence of God, you can see that God is the one that has brought you here. I don't know if you've gone in, in stages like that in your life. I can remember when I was 25, I moved to the United States by myself. The only reason I still serve the Lord is because the Lord guarded me. I was kind of a disillusion with Christianity. I've been a Christian since age 17. But I was a Christian in a legalistic mindset. I had to earn God's favor. And you know what I, I learned seven years of that? I cannot earn God's favor. So I was very disillusioned. And the only way I, I, I survived that, looking back, I remember being in Atlanta, Georgia, feeling lonely, asking that question, where are you, God? The only way I'm here today is because I am continually with you. During those times, he was, you're mine, buddy. You're thinking you're, you're, you're riding the ship. I'm the captain now. No, no, let me tell you. I'm with you. He took, my, he took me by the hand. He guided me. And I love this. And after a while, you will receive me to glory. You see how the finish lines change? The finish line now is not ending the trial. The finish line now is like getting into glory to the presence of God. Because in the presence of God, that we, what we learn is that's the greatest good. You see, we see the goodness of God in the providence of salvation, in the gospel being revealed by us by grace. We were blind and now we can see. One of the things that my 12-year-old, this very black and white type of guy, struggle is how is there so much evidence of God people still doubt? It's because a miracle needs to happen. God needs to guide us. He, he, he's the only one that can keep us toward the end. And when we understand that, our perspective in life changes completely. But, but he don't only like guide us and keep us to get to heaven. The, the greatest part is he does that so we can experience him. You see, in the presence of God, we realize not only what God does, is what God is. And we realize he's our greatest good. Verse 25, whom I have in heaven but you. And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the presence of God, we realize we have everything if we have him. He's our greatest good. He's our greatest need. Only God can bring complete, com complete fullness toward us. He say, my flesh and my soul can become weak. We can become nothing. But if I have you, who I have in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. I want you, Lord. And the, and the, and the 
passage tells why. At the end of verse 26, he says, and my portion forever. That word portion there, I'm having flashback. I may have explained this last, because I think Psalm 46, which I preached last time, have that word also. That word portion, what it means, it's like an inheritance. But when you think of an inheritance, you're thinking of a piece of land that your mom or dad has somewhere in the countryside that you're going to get. Or a, a, a little bank account. Or it could be a bigger bank account. If it's a bigger bank account, you can, call, you can talk to me. We have some missions, uh, <laughs> opportunities <laughs> that, that you're getting. But in some ways, it's irrelevant if you get that. You are setting your life. You have a house. You have things. You don't need that to survive. Here is different. In the times of biblical times, the portion was something that it was essential for the family to, to survive. And it went from generation to generation to generation. If there were shepherds, the animals, and I say the animals because if I say sheep, you think I'm talking of a boat. The animals, thank you for the people that got there. <laughs> the animals were, were taken care of. Why do you think David will face a lion or a bear for, for a little sheep or goat. Because if the, that animal killed the, uh, killed the, killed the sheep of the goat, they is, they're dead. That is what they need to survive. That is what they need to move forward. If it was a carpenter, they need the tools and the skill to continue moving forward. So they need that. They protect that with their lives. The psalmist is saying, you are more important than that. You are what I need. You are better than oxygen. You see, in the presence of God, when we are in front of his glory, we see that what we need is him. And that's what we see through scripture. We see normal people that see the glory of God in his presence and they're transformed. Moses, he see the glory of God, he's transformed. We see Paul, he sees the glory of God on the road to Damascus, he's transformed. We see Stephen, he's about to die, and the heavens are open, and he sees the glory of God, and he's like, ready to go. When we are in the presence of God, that's what we see. There's something better, more glorious. That is what we need and what completely full, make us full. And we are grateful. Why? Because we get that by only grace. Because if we see the glory of God without clean hearts, without the sacrifice of Jesus, we will be consumed. But when we are in the presence of God, we are aware that we are not being consumed because he has been merciful toward us, to Jesus. And that's what we say. We are getting what we need free. It's glorious. And at the end, the psalmist ends by contrasting the wicked and the one that are part of the people of God. You see, he, he, at the beginning he was being envious of them and now he's saying, look at the difference. It's a difference of far versus near. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Verse 28. You see the difference. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell you all your works. In times of trials, sometimes, 
have been consumed by the self-pity. And I get to a couch. And I'm in that couch. Usually it's on Mondays when I do a bad sermon. And you're in that couch there feeling sorry about yourself. And you know what Kathy does? She will come down the stairs, look at me and say, open your Bible. Because she knows if I'm a son of God and I come here, it's going to change me. It's going to change my perspective. And sometimes you are like fighting. I'm, I'm in the couch and I'm, like, I'm going to open the Bible. <laughs> because it feels good to feel bad. But there's something I want you to be aware. You know where we see the presence of God more clearly in this size of heaven? Right now. When the word of God is being proclaimed by imperfect people that preach the perfect gospel. Every Sunday, faithful pastors like Matthew and Chris preach the perfect word of God to you. So you can experience the nearness of God. So don't come to church like it's something else. Come with the expectancy that you're going to experience the nearness of God through his word, through his spirit. I don't know where you are if you are on, trial, on a trial right now. You may have just received the punch. You may be on mile 13. You may be closing to a full marathon. You may be on a ultra marathon. And I know the church wants to walk this, walk this with you. But what I know is that in the presence of God, we experience the goodness of God. Because when we are near God, we understand that Jesus has to be far from the Father on the cross so that we can draw near to him. And that's good. That is his goodness. Let us be those that in those moments our eyes are tempted to look at ourselves, to look elsewhere, that we can, by the grace of God, look up to heaven and see Christ dying for our sins so that we understand that truly God is good to his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness toward us. You are a good God. You save us. You save those that deserve wrath and gave us hope and a future and gave us the certainty that you are what we need. That will be those that respond in those difficult moments where our minds are tempted to go elsewhere. Those those who go to the sanctuary of God and experience the goodness of God. So that our perspective will be corrected by your word. And the, we can experience your nearness. Because we are going to experience that nearness for eternity. And that is our good. We thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.